Absolutely. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Christopher Hall Show. I'm excited to welcome to the program, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Christopher Hall, thank you for your service. Uh, it's great what you do at the emergency room, your book, all these different things. But we have a very inspiring guest and not many people have heard from the champ in a while. And this is why we're here to do this interview. A lot of exciting things coming up, but we want to learn more about him as well. Uh, Dr. Hall, how are you? Wow. Well, I'm doing great, Neil. And I'm very excited, you know, wow, that we that we have a champion uh, today on the show. So um, very excited. Absolutely introduce our guest uh, as people are seeing from the TV, but for radio purposes, go ahead and introduce our guest. Wow. Well, no problem. No problem. Well, you know, it's my honor to uh, introduce a uh, former Olympic medalist, a uh, world uh, heavyweight champion in boxing of the world. Uh, The only boxer to two time. -time. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Champ. The only boxer to hold, uh, the uh, titles in all four major sanctioning uh, bodies in boxing. So, wow. I'm just so excited to welcome to the show, Champ uh, Riddick Bo. Welcome to the show, Bo. Hey, good to see you. How's everything? Awesome. We're doing fantastic. And already, uh, Dr. Hall, we've already setting up a, a, a pro wrestling match up between uh, Bo and I. Because, you know, and Bo, I'm a legitimate 6'10 and 300 pounds. So, yeah, yeah. How tall Number are you? Six five. Six five. Oh, we got definitely. We're gonna have to have this match. The I, heavyweights, man. The yeah, the heavyweights. heavyweights go after it for sure. All right, Doctor Hall, go with your first question for Bo. Wow, well, no problem. Well, you know, so excited to have on show today, uh, Bo, and uh, you know, just tell us a little bit about kind of like um, where you're from and um, how did you get into boxing? I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And I got into boxing because the teacher put a tape about Muhammad Ali one day. And I just fell in love with him. He said, come on, sucker, come on, sucker. I did the dream. And ever since then, I've been in boxing. Uh, and so did you know that this was something you really wanted to do? So you were a fan of Muhammad's then? Well, I was a fan of Muhammad. Let me tell you what happened. There was a bully in class, and he said he liked Joe Frazier better. That was okay with me. But then he said Ali was a faggot. I said, you must be talking about your mama. Oh, my. And we got the fight, man. And when the, after the fight was over, the new champ was born. I was the new champ. And so he got expelled from the school. And she asked me if, if I wanted to go to a gym. I said, absolutely. I've been in boxing ever since. That's great story so far. Go ahead, Dr. Hall. Next question. Wow. It's just incredible. So um, tell us this, champ. Uh, Bo, tell us a little about what was it like being in the Olympics uh, and uh, winning a medal? Well, you know, emulating Muhammad Ali, I guess it was, for me, being a kid, I really didn't realize what all that really meant. But I was just a kid having fun. And to get a silver medal for my country was the greatest thing in the world for me. Yeah, that's, and that, it feels great, right? It feels like it's something that's so special to represent the United States, isn't it? Absolutely. It's the greatest country in the world, man. And to be a children's or gold medal for my country, and I thought I died and went to heaven. It's great to know that because a lot of times we think of the, the professional story more than the amateur story. For sure. And that's uh, that's a great part. And emulating Muhammad Ali in so many ways. Interesting. All right, Dr. Hall, next question. Yeah. Wow, it's just exciting to have a champ during this time. You know, when we're trying to knock out COVID, we've got our champ here. So, well, uh, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, I, I, I think that you had 33 knockouts. 
And, I, you know, what was it like? I think you were the only man who knocked uh, Evander Holyfield out. Uh, tell us uh, about that. I was the first guy to knock him out. Well, me and Evander Holyfield used to be sparring partners. And I learned a lot from him. But I guess after I, after we fought each other, I knew one day we, I would have to fight him. But I learned a lot from him. He's a great guy. Actually, we're, we're pretty good friends. You know, he's a good guy. Interesting. Great, great. And I think that that process of knocking people out, let's talk about how you do that, the knock, the make sure you prepare that you're like, this is the time to do the knockout. What did you think Riddick was your, Bo was your like, when to decide I'm going to knock them out? When did you have that feeling? I know it's going to be a knockout. Well, welcome to the ring. I know what I'm, I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. Now, it's up to my opponent to figure out what I'm trying to do and to capitalize. If he doesn't do that, he's going to be in big trouble. He gets knocked out fast and early. On professional wrestling, Bo, you're not going to be able to do that because I can get it. I can do a lot more in the ring. Than, well, see, you know, I'm going to surprise you. I know a little bit about wrestling. My brother <laughs> used to love wrestling. Okay. Uh, yeah. I remember Andre Giant, TJ Strongbow, yeah. Superfly, Jimmy Snooker. See, I knew wrestling before I knew boxing. <laughs> All right, okay. And again, you're a giant among men, just like me at, at six foot ten. You're a legitimate six foot five. Do you think that helped a lot in the as a heavyweight to be the height you had in your reach? Yeah, I think because um, a lot of guys really couldn't reach me. And if they did reach me, they were in the danger zone where I can hit them with an uppercut or straight right hand, so I pretty much had the advantage all the way around. All right, Dr. Hall, next question. Oh, yeah, no problem. No problem at all. So, wow. So, um, what kind of things, you know, champ, Um, I mean, you know, to be a champion, I mean, you, you, you go through so many things to get to the top, and, you know, lots of young people watching, listening to the show and watching it, and so, uh, what would be your advice to these young men out here who want to get to the top of what field they're in? I mean, what, what what do you think they should do? What kind of uh, principles should they have, champ? Well, I guess for the most part, you got to get yourself a good manager and make sure your manager's not a crook. You know what I mean? Sometimes you got to get another manager to watch him. But anyway, I think, you know, if you run, do your push-up, you sit up like you're supposed to and eat the right things, you should be okay. That's important. Training is such an important thing, Bo, is training, right? The, if you don't prepare yourself, as you said, you were hitting the heavy bag before getting on this interview, that training is such an important thing to prepare yourself for the next event or the next part of life. Absolutely. The running, the, the running, the speed bag, because speed bag, you know, really is really for your eyes to see the punches coming and what have you. But if you do this thing, you're supposed to, You'll be phenomenal when you when you have to do them. And so, my mother made me promise her that I was gonna I was gonna do this thing right and pay attention. And so that's what I did. Absolutely. As we're again we're talking Rick Riddick Bow here on the Dr. Christopher Hall Show and the Neil Haley Network. Uh, Dr. Hall, I think that you also believe how important training is, don't you, Dr. Hall? Definitely. And, you know, training and discipline and hard work and, and certainly listening to, you know, your parents, and just like uh, the champ has said, just like Bo has said, you know, how you listen to his mother. So, yeah, that, that's all very, very important uh, to be successful. 
now now Bo has some big things coming up, I guess, that we're going to continue to talk about. Potentially, if you think I can make my comeback into the wrestling ring, but we have a lot to talk about today with the champ involving that. So, for Bo, first of all, I hear that you're acting now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. You know, I wanted to act when I was a little kid watching Bewitch and one of my other sitcoms. Um, uh, I just fell in love with, with, with the acting, but I just didn't know how to go about telling people I want to act and things of that nature. And if you take take boxing fans, I was going into the Marine Corps. I was telling my mother, every other day, I'm gonna be a Marine. I told her so much, she was a boy, shut up, be quiet. But um, as luck would have it, I got into boxing and I kind of forgot about the Marine Corps because of boxing, you know, but I'm, I'm gonna have a lot of fun acting. Right, and you have some certain projects going on right now. You said what project you're working on and acting right now? Gravesend. Well, yeah, Gravesend. You know, we did that show, so I think I think that should be coming out pretty soon. And you have some other stuff coming out that you can't say yet, involving animated and all that stuff. So it's got to feel great, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I'm gonna tell you something. I didn't know it was so difficult because you got to cut this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot more stuff that goes with it, not just acting, you know. Yeah. It takes, takes three hours to do one, one shot that's four or five seconds, you know. You have to pass the time, right? At times, yeah. figuring out and talking to guys, seeing different things on set and all those things. And Dr. Hall, just to kind of talk about that, when I would wait for a wrestling match, Dr. Hall, and I was a main event, I'd yeah. be waiting sometimes three or four hours backstage, kind of like what Bo had to do in boxing, but the difference is doing the take over and over and over again, Dr. Hall. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Incredible. here's something that is big news. Bo is making a comeback in boxing involving a celebrity boxing match. You cannot mention who he's going to fight, but is that true, Bo? Absolutely. It's true. And I think the fight is scripted for, I think, February sometime. I'm going to have a lot of fun, and whoever I'm fighting, it ain't going to be too much fun for them. Oh my goodness gracious! Wow, and uh, and you're preparing yourself already. You're already training for February, aren't you? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Actually, maybe a half an hour ago, we just got finished training for the day. That's awesome. And I think what? How excited are you to be getting back in the ring? It's got to be. Uh, you feel great. Well, I'm very excited. I love boxing. I haven't done it in 20 years, so I, you know I can't wait. See, that sets us up, but we're going to talk also. You have a video game coming. You're going to be involved in the video game too, correct? Yes, sir. 100%. Awesome. All these unbelievable things are coming for the champ, Bo. Uh, Dr. Hall, what question do you have for him that I'm going to challenge him here on my show? I want him in the ring. But, Dr. Dr. Hall, one more question for Bo before I, I go and say you're how take he's going to yeah. You're going to take a whooping too. No, I'm not taking You're a whooping. You're going to be my new Joe Frazier. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> new Go, ahead, Joe Dr. <laughs> Go ahead, Dr. Hall, with your last question for uh, Bo, and then I'm going to go and, and challenge him right here because, uh, and we'll have to have the wrestling match wherever he's located, and we'll get the promoters involved and everything. Go ahead, Dr. Hall. Uh, well, no problem. I better get your, your, your corner, Neil. Uh, you know, you might need a doctor, but uh, 
anyway, <laughs> I wanted to ask, uh, ask the champ. I wanted to ask, ask Bo. Um, uh, so, um, what was your most exciting uh, a match like throughout your career? I mean, you had so many exciting matches, and what was the most exciting match well, for you? The, the first one I have to say, Evander Holyfield. He was smart in boxing and. He was very courageous. He took chances that you would think a guy his size wouldn't take. So I think also it was fun. You didn't you didn't really know what was going to take place with him. But then the fight went ahead. Who's that? Um, uh, Jorge Luis Gonzalez. He was predictable. So I just exposed him. You know, I hit him with uppercut, left hook, right hand. He was just there for a little bit of everything. And, and plus, he, I was angry with him. So I'm just glad I didn't hurt him the way he couldn't recover. Absolutely. Wow. See, but see, Bo, you're not going to be able to do that in the wrestling ring. I got, I can, I, I can hammer Shisher style at 6'10, 300 pounds. And I can also hit you with the choke slam. I'm yeah. not the one you can slow when you can slam, though. How about that? Yeah, okay. No, I'll hit you the choke slam, maybe the big boot and my leg drop, or maybe I'll have to get the help from the doctor. And let me ask you a question. You doing all that, what do you think I'm going to be doing? I don't know. I'll be moving around you. Okay, and what, age are you, what, you, what, what age are you, Bo? And what age am I? I'm 48. We about the same age, I'd say. We about the same yep. age, okay. Okay, 20 years out, you were out of the boxing ring. 20 years I've been out of the wrestling ring. So that's perfect. I retired 29, 29 years old in Bremen, Germany, and uh, then went on to uh, my entrepreneur career, my talk show host career. It's time to get back in the ring, and the only way to, is, is the spotlight needs to be on me, not you, Bo. People will be cheering for me, not you. Oh, because they're familiar with um, wrestling. You probably know better than... I don't know. I think they'll be cheering you, champ. Who knows? I was just playing on you. You got the millions and millions of fans. You're the champion. I'm you just in trouble then. I mean, you're going to be in trouble because I'm going to make the fans happy, man. No, yeah, you make them happy, but I might have a secret. I might have a secret on my hands. Yeah, I know what the corner. secret is. I know what the secret is already. You're going to tap out. Oh, I'm going to tap out. Oh, no. Okay, so we've announced it here first. We'll have to hear it more coming up. A match between the heavyweight champion of the world, Riddick Bowe, and the seven-foot-tall, two-time, two-time heavyweight champion of the world, and the seven-foot giant, Big Neil, the real deal. So it's over. It's over because you're not going to be able to take on a seven-footer and be able to beat. seven-foot giant is about to get dealt with. You're about to get dealt with, man. Okay, we'll see. I'm we heard it first. You just gotta check out. You gotta check out social media to see it. But Dr. Hall, close up with uh, summarizing uh, the champion, two-time heavyweight champion, Rodick Bell. Ah, no problem, no problem. Wow, so it's just been an exciting, exciting uh, session interview here with the champ. Um, you know, he's told us about uh, how he became the champ. He's told us about some custom boxing. Uh, that uh, that are important in life, and so wow, we're just very very excited to have uh, Bo, the champ, come by today. Thanks, champ. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And and, and guess what? We'll, we'll also know you're working on a book, but maybe you won't be there to be a, to have a book released because you'll be in the hospital after I take you out. Absolutely not. Me and yeah, the yeah. I tell you. Okay, <laughs> I tell you right now. Get along. Okay, we'll see. We're gonna see. 
you really think it will get this contract signed and we'll have that match. I'll reach out to my promoters and pro wrestling and we'll make this happen. Cause again, I, I need to have you a real spotlight. Yeah. Okay. We will see. Okay. Champ. We'll see you. All right. All right. <laughs> okay, that, that was all right, guys. That was the Dr. Christopher Hall show. Take care. Hi everyone. And welcome to the Dr. Christopher Hall show. I'm excited to welcome the program. Dr. Christopher Hall, Dr. Hall. How are you? Thank you for your service. Well, no problem. Yeah, uh, and, I, and, and I'm pumped hard. up also. You're a Nobel Prize nominee. That's the cool thing. I got to always put that in your title now, uh, but I always like to say that. So Nobel Prize nominee, top level uh, COVID expert. We talked about COVID before anyone else. Remember, I got you booked on a, about 20 podcasts when no one thought it would ever come to the United States. And that we're kind of going into that almost phase of uh, how many years ago we were we were starting to discuss these things. You know what I mean? Yeah, very true. And it's good that we you know we did get out and 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 got good information out. And uh, and now we can see what what's really going on. So uh, wow, the whole the whole uh, scenario just has just been uh, been kind of fascinating uh, and even tricky at points. It is. And let's kind of just jump right into the, you know, the, those particulars and kind of looking at the particulars, first of all, uh, jumping into the, the process. Let's talk about right now, even though we went to no masks all over the country, if you're vaccinated, we are now seeing an uptick because of the new strain being here. Isn't that true, Dr. Hall? We know that's very true. And, and so in general, kind of what we're seeing, uh, we started to notice about early June, that the cases that reported in the United States uh, were at about 8,000 or so uh, a day. Uh, just recently, July 14th, uh, it's now reporting positive uh, infections uh, at 33,000 a day. And so it has steadily increased from the about mid to late June to now. Um, that other number, the hospitalizations, again, the CDC looks at it over a seven-day period, and they give a seven-day average. Um, so not this past seven days, but the prior seven days, the average hospitalization was uh, about 161 a day. And so for the last seven weeks, it's went up to 211 or so uh, over a seven-day average for admissions to the hospital. So again, we see the hospital admissions increasing. We see the number of cases increasing. And, um, and therefore, we know that the death rate is also going to increase because as hospitalizations increase, the death rate also increases. And so this brings up another questions. The newest variant, Dr. Hall, that's something that we have to look at ultimately right now is the newest variant is more contagious. Isn't that correct? Than the first COVID uh, wave that we dealt with, right? Exactly. And the way to think about it is, is that this newest variant, variant um, pretty much um, causes the illness to spread faster. Um, and actually, uh, in England, they found that uh, some of the symptoms were a little more severe with the, the new variant. Now, what's to note is um, the vaccinations that are occurring, the vaccinations that are occurring across the country, and how effective has that been? So if we look at that data, um, what the CDC will report is they're saying about 45% of Americans have received one dose of one of the vaccines. Uh, and they said about 
I'm sorry, uh, 59% about one dose, and they said about 45% they believe are fully vaccinated. So when you think about that, and you think about the other people who have been uh, received immunity to, uh, say, um, initial exposure just from uh, oral from that virus, right? there are a lot of people out here with antibodies to the virus. Okay, one part of the virus with spike protein or, or other parts of the virus through those immunity processes. So the fact that the, the, the uh, number of positive cases would go from 8,000 to 33,000 over two or three weeks doesn't really uh, support that we have uh, this level of immunity that's reported by the CDC. And so we have a dilemma. So asymptomatic is another part of this problem, right? Many people are walking around with COVID right now all, and they're dealing with it, right? Exactly. And there are a lot of people who, like, again, um, who have gotten it through, who have just through eating food, who have been, you know, their, their GIS has been exposed to it, and they have uh, mucosal antibodies to it, and then there are people who have, uh, who have been vaccinated. Now, this is what's important to note. Um, the, uh, as you can see, once the virus mutates and, you know, we have a different strain of it, like now we have the Delta, you see that outbreaks will occur. And so we can already predict that with the same vaccine in place, as the virus mutates, more outbreaks will occur. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we rely on the vaccine for the multiple mutations that will occur uh, over the next so many months and years? Yeah, absolutely. When you talk about the vaccine, uh, Dr. Hall, and all these stuff, or, or medicines, I think it's a great point because you can't constantly get vaccinated. I mean, what has happened in this, in this process? If we figure out the ways to treat, like you talked about uh, Dr. Ben Marble and your business, and that business again is Dr. Hall, what is it again? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is my, what is that website again? For- yeah, you know, myfreedoctor.com. And it's a place where you have, again, a number of greatest doctors, uh, a lot of them have been actually nominated for the Nobel Prize uh, for the work with, uh, surrounding COVID, but you have doctors who are willing to treat you with medicines that are effective. And again, what lies before America are the two approaches to treatment for this medication. And this is what it comes to, for this illness, rather. This is what it comes down to. Again, do we rely on a vaccine that we have to keep uh, updating, keep improving for new mutants, okay? And again, we know that just uh, with the vaccines uh, so far, we've had, uh, if you look at the uh, adverse reporting system uh, by the CDC, the government, um, uh, nine to 10,000 deaths uh, from the uh, vaccine. So wow. uh, it mm. would not make sense to keep updating a vaccine, have more deaths, more adverse reactions. When you have a medicine, a uh, number of medicines that are effective to treat this. Again, think about how we treat the flu. People certainly get the flu vaccine, but as we go throughout the season, we don't keep, for that particular season, changing the vaccine every month, every two months, and we don't do that. We treat them with Tamiflu and with other medicines that have been shown to work effectively. Why we're not taking this approach with COVID, I'm not quite sure. So, okay, so so hydroxychloroquine, uh, zithromycin, and also just, just other types of things. And now this latest virus, Dr. Hall, meaning the latest mutation of this virus, is it as deadly as the first? No doubt. 
And the fact is, um, data from across the world, particularly what we saw in India most recently, shows that this Delta strain is more deadly than the initial COVID virus that we experienced uh, during the uh, uh, initial pandemic stage. And so that's what we saw in India. We saw that they started to use ivermectin, and then we saw the cases drop, the hospitalizations drop, and the deaths drop. Um, some would like to attribute that to uh, vaccination that occurred in India, but if you look closely at the data, you'll see that when they started using ivermectin is when the death rate and hospitalizations started to go down in India. And so I think that um, if that approach uh, is very effective. It's been shown to work in India. Interesting. And so what is your recommendation for people, especially that are not wearing masks at all, are not really social distancing? Is that really the best bet right now when we're about to go on fire again? What would you recommend a, a normal person do to kind of be social distance in certain aspects? They've stopped talking about that, saying you don't need masks or anything. That might have been too early of a process, right, to just open everything up for people that are vaccinated. Well, this is the deal. I think that, um, you know, um, the data is showing that the vaccine that we have is not going to be effective uh, to control this illness and to control uh, people from dying uh, from COVID and being reinfected. So we have data that's starting to show that. Um, we certainly do need to social distance. Again, you need to obviously wash your hands. Um, but the most effective treatment, again, if you start to have symptoms, those symptoms of COVID could be, uh, something simple as sore throat, body aches, headache, fever, particularly fever, um, you know, you need to get to a uh, treatment facility where you can get early treatment with hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, ivermectin, and those vitamins that have been shown to be effective in fighting this virus. And so that's the, that is what it's going to come down to. Um, if I were to predict the future, I'd say that um, effective medicine will control this virus. Um, and, uh, uh, I think that's where we're going. All right. So the best place to go check you out and stuff, Dr. Hall's follow you on your social media, check out the Dr. Christopher Hall show on all different places, Google you, but also the best bet is, uh, you have a couple of websites to go to too, right? And you can purchase your book on Amazon. Exactly. Yeah. Amazon, the book word of court, which details my life from, growing up in foster home, four years old, to boys home, to juvenile hall, uh, until I was 18 off to college. So yeah, the book is there with all the details. And, um, I'm hoping this is a message that, uh, America will really, uh, resonate, uh, resonate. Uh, all right. Well, we appreciate it, Chris. The great information again, congratulations again, being a Nobel prize nominee and you're really making a difference. And I'm glad next week we'll be back to celebrities, but I thought this is a perfect timing with the virus increasing to get a take from a doctor, especially a Nobel prize, uh, nominated doctor. So appreciate it. Dr. Hall. No problem. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to Dr. Christopher Hall show guys and take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Light in the Morning podcast. I'm excited to welcome to Margo Lamarck. Margo, what's going on? I guess we're in the mid of summer, and uh, it's hustle and bustle and uh, craziness for sure. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing fine. Thank you, Neil. It has been a busy summer, but I love it. It's fun to be outside and busy. 
Exactly. It's awesome to be fun outside and busy and you never know where you're going to go and what's going to happen. So we've been discussing the book and we've had some really interesting stories, but every time it points back to Margot in a lot of ways that your spirit does not leave you after you die, that that memory, even though not just memories that we talked about before, not just the memory, but not just the, uh, love that person and you know, the memories that we have in pictures, but the spirit lives on, correct? Right. And that's something that's sometimes missing for people to understand that when they pass on, that you still have that spirit near you, you have it there and can really bring you back at times and surprising things. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the spirit does live on and it lives on, on its own, but it also lives in our heart. And we talked about that in one of the, one of the interviews. And that's the purpose of grieving is in remembering and everything and taking that time when someone dies to, to just sort of get them resituated in your heart so that they never leave you. And that's why grieving is so important. And we've talked about that before, but um, yeah, I think one, one point of my book, the point of my book, one of the points is that we don't die. And, you know, this next chapter that we're talking about really brings that message home. Um, and I quoted my brother um, in the very last line of the book, you know, when he told me he didn't die. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just so hard because we can't see them, we can't hear them, we can't talk to them. It's so hard to realize that they're still alive, but they are. And that's where my book, I think, is really giving people hope because they believe my stories, they're true. <laughs> and um, this this particular chapter is, is really, really points to that, I think. I think it's kind of the heart of the book regarding that message. So let's talk about chapter four. And like you said, this is a lesson when you had to write this chapter, you said this is one of the biggest chapters that kind of really uh, took you right going yeah. back and writing, right? Yes, yes, yes. Because it's be- it, this is the chapter why I wrote the book. Um, you know, when my brother died, that that was it. I just went kind of inward and, and I just thought, well, I had been told 20 years ago to write this book. And uh, when my brother died, I decided, okay, now I'm going to write the book and whatever comes out. And I had no idea what was going to come out, but whatever comes out will be my living memorial to my brother. And um, so, yeah, I would say that this is kind of the heart of the book. Um, Do you want me to just tell you about it or? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. So when Mike died, um, it's a long story, but just cutting to the chase. Every single night, I had a dream of my brother. Every single night after he died, I had a dream of him. And, you know, we've been talking about these real dreams that I have. And real dreams are when people come to you in a dream and they are really there. And they have a message and they're they're literally there. It's different than a kind of a wispy, incoherent dream. And so every single night he came to me in a dream. And in the dream, he he tried to get the people who were, who were in my dream to see him. He tried to get me to see him. I could see him. Nobody else could see him. People would talk to me, but they wouldn't talk to him. And every single night, it was a different dream, different people, but he was in it getting up real close to me in the dream so that whoever I was talking to in the dream, that person could see him too. 
it was very interesting and um so this went on for for oh, i don't know i don't know how long i'm losing track of time maybe a couple of weeks or something like that and um his best friend called me one night and, and it's the friend whose home he died in and his name is steve and he called me and he goes margo i'm having the weirdest dreams of mike every night i said me too and he said he's coming to me every single day i said me Holy too God, wow. oh my god <laughs> isn't that yeah. interesting mm -hmm. yeah and so what what happened was in talking to him we both realized that mike didn't know he was dead he didn't know he had died and that's why he was coming so vividly in these dreams to say i'm right here no i'm right here here i am here i am and and steve had the very same experience so when we realized that it, it was huge i mean that was really something so i talked to a friend of mine that night and i said what do i do he doesn't know he's dead he said you need to tell him and so what i did that night then is i sat on my bed and I told him that he was here, but he's not physically in the body anymore. Oh my and that's why he's, wow. yeah. And that's why he sees me crying every day. And that's why he, people aren't talking to him. And, and it's so interesting, Neil, because what happened was when I told him that I could see him, I could feel him realizing what I was saying, like realizing that whatever they were telling him on the other side, he was getting it now. It was making sense to him what they were telling him on the other side. I'm sure the guys were saying, hey, you're dead. You got to move on, you know. And when I told him and explained it to him and I was crying so hard and telling him when I did that, I could I could feel him realize it realize what I was saying. And the interesting thing is that night. I mean, it took me maybe half an hour or something, and I just cried myself to sleep after I was done talking to him. And that night, he didn't come back in a dream, and he never did again. Those dreams were over. He realized he was dead. He realized he'd left his body. Isn't that interesting? That's so interesting. I mean, and I start thinking about that, and those things uh, to, do come out, especially when they talk about certain things where people were you know, rooms or houses are haunted in certain ways and uh, it's because yeah. of spirits. And then you're telling me this, a guy named Mike Anthony did a big thing on a Netflix about it and story about his grandfather and stuff. So you'd never know. And then they had to go to, a, I guess, a, a medium to find out this is real. This is not okay. Fake. Well, mm -hmm. all right. Okay. Well, you just mentioned a medium. Well, what I did is after he stopped coming to me in dreams, I, I had a, a scheduled um, memorial, uh, memorial service from, for his friends here. And so we just had a dinner at my house with about a dozen people. He didn't live here, so it was just my friends that knew him. And um, at the end of that dinner, I, and we watched, we watched movies of his life and, and photographs. You know, we had a slideshow, and the slideshow was mostly his photographs because he was a professional photographer. And so it was a very sad, solemn evening. And at the end, I said to my friend Deborah, who is um, – I don't know how to explain her. She's – Way be, it's not psychic, it's way beyond that. She she has the ability to communicate right. on other levels okay. very mm -hmm. clearly. Mm -hmm. So I asked her if she could find Mike. 
and just if you could check on him because now I know he's not there anymore and she said yeah call me tomorrow night so the next night um, and it was when I, I, I was in a hotel in Charlotte and I was on my way to a funeral in Eau Claire. We had done the one in L.A. I had this memorial service at my house and now I was going to our hometown. So I was in a hotel and I called her and Neil, she took me on a shamanic journey. That's the only thing I can call it. Okay. And yeah, she had me do this breathing exercise and get me all ready oh and gosh. then she yeah yeah she, yeah she had me walk she had me create this path to walk down and so i created this path in the woods in north carolina you know i could feel the damp leaves okay. under me mm-hmm. i could feel the wind and the sun through the trees everything to, went on this journey and i won't go through the journey because it's it's in the book and it's fascinating but at one point she had me stop and she said do you see the meadow in front of you and i said yes and she said look across the meadow she said, is Mike there? And I went, yes, <laughs> he was there. I just burst out crying because there he was. And I can't, oh, I'm going to cry. I can't oh even gosh. tell you yeah. what it is like when you get to be with this person again after they yes. have died. Oh Neil, it's Lord. just like they are in real life. It's just, oh my gosh. It, yeah, yeah he came over and hugged me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a real hug. It's a real everything about him. And oh, I can't even tell you. So that experience of finding my brother. And then she told me, she said, um, he's been waiting for you. He wanted to say goodbye. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So that, that story is just incredible. There is so much more to the story. That's kind of the crux of it. But um, I don't know if we're running out of time or if I can tell you one yeah, more thing. Go ahead and tell, yeah, definitely tell us one more thing. Yeah. Okay. So, you, you know, the, the message I got from Mike, I, I didn't – I, I was just – I, I I came to terms with his death then because of that. I felt so much better. I knew he was alive. And, and so you can't imagine how you feel when you know that that spirit is still out there. You know, you just can't see them. So I didn't have another dream with Mike until a year later. And it was right around the anniversary of his death. So now I have another real dream. And he comes to me and I'm like, Mike, my God, you know, I'm so excited, you know, to see you. And 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 I started talking a mile a minute and I said to him, I said, you know, Mike, I need to know when am I going to see you again? I just I, I can't wait to see you again and be with you again. And he said to me, it's not about when we will see each other again. It's so much more than that. And I was really surprised at his response. And I said, like what? And he said, it's about what you do. Now, mm, wow. I, mm-hmm. I, I was really taken by that. I was, I was like, what? What does that even mean? You know? And I realized then with him in this dream that it's not about who you're with in this lifetime. It is about what you do with who you are with, how you are being with who you are with. Who you are with comes and goes. We have family, they come and go. We have a spouse or something, Mm -hmm. they're there a lot. Some people are there more than others. Some people are just there once. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how you are being with the person you are with. Ah, that's that's so interesting. Very, very. Isn't it? Isn't it? 
you know, I have to say I was almost disappointed because I'm like, no, I want to know when I'm going to be with you again. But I'll tell you, I took that so deep and I thought about it when I woke up and I took it so deep in my heart. And ever since then, just like every other message changed me so completely, this one, I became so much more present with whoever I am with. And one day it'll be Mike again. But until that time, I'm not yearning for him. I can't wait to see him. But I am just being, you know, love the one you're with. <laughs> yes, I'm just yes. being 100% with the people that I'm with. And so what a gift he gave me because I was very attached to him, you know, still am, you know, but, but he really gave me a gift in literally being in the moment with whoever you're with and just giving them your best, just giving them your best at every moment. Okay. All right. Uh, the best place to go purchase the book is go to lightinthemorning.com, but also you can go purchase it on Amazon, correct? Correct. Awesome. And I think that the the story, this story just goes back to, it's more than you being an undertaker's daughter. You have had uh, some pretty interesting death experiences to love your loved ones. And this chapter for sure definitely brought it up. So if you guys can't wait to like read the whole thing, just go purchase it now. And I uh, appreciate you coming by Margo. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Neil. Take care. Okay. See ya. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That was the light morning podcast guys. Take care. We're back to the Neil Haley show here. And you know, it's just interesting when we get to talk to another broadcast journalist and learn from her and especially her story. And you know, it's just, it's something about how we overcome adversity. And my guest, Kimberly Alexander has definitely overcame some adversity. She is a former NFL wife that has a very interesting story, but also a story of how we can overcome things and all obstacles, even if we lose the person that we love the most. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Kimberly Alexander. Kimberly, thanks for calling. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's kind of take us down this road. First of all, how you became an NFL wife and the story kind of through that till then learning about what happened. Uh, Well, the way I became an NFL wife was rather um, uneventful, in my opinion. But in hindsight, I'm just like, man, I don't know how my parents didn't kill me. Um, I actually met my my late husband right after his rookie season with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I was a student at the University of Florida. We met one weekend, went out the next weekend. And that was it. About a year and a half later, we were married at that point he was playing for the denver broncos and um, we got married had our first son i was still in school i transferred from the university of florida to cu boulder and that started my life as an nfl wife and it's always been interesting because i've had people ask me well what was it like being married to an nfl player and i would always tell them you know i i don't know anything different so to me it was just rather normal football was just his job and um and it pretty much dictated everything we did moving forward of course with our life revolving around his football season and we moved accordingly he was in denver for three seasons uh he then went to the indianapolis colts for three seasons he actually sat out one year recovering from an injury and we thought he'd never play football again 
but he in fact recovered from that injury and ended his career with the Oakland Raiders where he played for two additional years. So we were with the NFL for technically 10 years, but he actually played only nine. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so that process of, uh, learning, how did you deal with, uh, the, the travel and all the different things that involve NFL? Were you able to handle it well in, in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, I think I handled it well just because I didn't know anything different, you know, um, because of his career, I knew that my career was not really going to go anywhere initially. Um, because I was at the University of Colorado while he was playing with the Broncos, you know, our instructors told us, look, when you graduate from school, you're going to end up being a one-man band out in Farmington, New Mexico, making about thirteen, fourteen $14,000 per year. And I couldn't do that. I was already married. I already had a son. And my life literally revolved around his games. And so while the other students were at school and on weekends planning to hang out and party, I was going home to cook dinner for my husband and, and scout whoever he was playing that weekend. So my lifestyle was just different. I didn't um, I didn't realize how different it was until now that I look back on it, especially because at the time I was only about 22, 23 years old. And when I look at my sons who are now 23 and 25, I'm like, man, I can't believe we were making the decisions that we were making at the age that we were, but that's just how our life was. And, and I don't regret anything about it. You know, Kimberly, it's interesting. We always look at the NFL athlete, meaning the, the player, not the wife. And especially if they're young as well, going through that process and how they deal with things. And especially if they can't go and do their careers because of their husband and having to settle very early that, their job is to be at home in a way. And there's not really great resources, would you agree, available for them to understand their role, especially if they are part of some pretty good money, depending on you know, the athletes and different things like that. So I just think it's something we don't focus on is the significant other of that player, right? Well, yeah, you know, back then, I mean, we learned pretty early on that financially, it just didn't make sense for us to work. I mean, not only was it an issue with the schedule, but just tax wise, you know, you, you're getting beat upside the head if you look at his salary and then you look at your salary and then you have to add in, okay, well, do I pay someone to watch right, my kid exactly. while I go to school? I mean, it just made no sense. But the difference between what life was like when I was an NFL wife as opposed to how it is now is to me, social media is now like a complete game changer. And I am loving seeing these young wives who are now taking the initiative to create their own identities and their own brands and build something up so that when football is over, they do have an opportunity or they have more of an opportunity to have some type of career after their husband's career ends. Yeah, that's so true because it's like, um, they are able to become a brand themselves and you didn't have that opportunity and they're mm -hmm. able to utilize their, the platform as the first wife in a way in the kind of like, you know, president, an NFL athlete, an NBA athlete, an NHL athlete. There's such a huge, you know, um, just image for them that the wife now has that opportunity to really make a difference philanthropically in all these different ways by having that their own platforms. And I agree. I see that in TikTok and different places where 
they're out there and it's tremendous now. So we've had heard the story about you being an NFL wife, but then things really went down uh, based on a, a tragic situation, right? Yeah. Um, a couple of years after my husband retired from the NFL and th- the way I always describe it was um, his last game was the infamous tuck rule game between the Oakland Raiders and the New England Patriots. And after that game, um, he just, he didn't want to play football anymore. And he was one of those players that was able to walk away from the NFL without issue. Um, There was no period of transition where he didn't want to, you know, he didn't know what he wanted to do with himself. He left the game and started an energy conservation company, went into real estate and life for the most part was great. You know, he started coaching our son's, um, sports teams they were both playing football and baseball and basketball and running track and so it seemed to be pretty easy going on being able to leave the nfl for him but a couple of years after he retired he started complaining about pain in his feet and he would go and visit different positions trying to identify where this discomfort was coming from and they all kept telling him well of course you've got pain in your feet. You've been playing football exactly. since you were yeah. five years old. So they were always very dismissive of it. And it wasn't until he was on a flight on his way to Costa Rica to play golf with a friend of his that he became sick. During that trip, his friends called a physician into the hotel. That doctor in Costa Rica was the one that did blood work on my husband and discovered that there was something extremely wrong. And within about a week, he was diagnosed with an incurable blood cancer called multiple myeloma. Oh, my. And what symptoms did he have for that cancer? Well, he really didn't have any outside of the pain in his feet. And that's kind of the tricky thing about myeloma and why I've been such an advocate for the disease ever since, because for the most part, the symptoms can be very benign. It's things like anemia, um, discomfort, like it's just nothing that's really blatant in your face. And then the even strange, stranger part about it is that myeloma typically affects people who are twice his age. So he was diagnosed with myeloma at 35. Back then, the average age was 65 to 70. So it was very rare for him to be diagnosed with myeloma at such a young age. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And wow. And th- for so the process didn't last long, right? Till he passed on, right? How long? It <laughs> no, it, it was about, um, it was almost five years. Oh, five, um, okay. he, yeah, yeah. He, he had a, um, a stem cell transplant, which is quite common for myeloma patients or, you know, in patients of other blood cancers. And that gave him a little time. The issue with myeloma is it's incurable but it does go in and out of remission and patients, especially nowadays, because there are so many new treatment options, they're able to live with the disease as long as physicians can find a good balance with the medication. Back then there weren't nearly as many treatment options. And unfortunately when Elijah's cancer was initially discovered, it had advanced a lot. And so um, unfortunately in, in March of 2010, I was actually in the middle of having a conversation with him. He wasn't feeling well that morning. Being his caregiver, I was quite used to the ups and downs of myeloma, and I'd already reached out to his physicians, you know, say, hey, something's going on. What should I be doing to try to help him feel better? And the physician asked me to get him ready just to bring him on into the hospital because something 
was very wrong and I just didn't know what it was. And sadly, I wasn't aware of it, but my husband was actually in the process of having what I believe was a stroke. And I ended up losing him that day from an aneurysm. And so it wasn't the cancer that directly took him, but it was like the side effects of the treatment. So I share my story so that it helps other people who might find themselves in the same position. Um, It was devastating. I was 37 years old and our boys at the time were 11 and 13. And so it's been quite the journey just trying to juggle all of the experiences that I've had in a very short period of time. Oh my goodness. So how did you, especially you were going to school and then mm-hmm. all these different things. And then you're used to being a mom and, and, and supporting your husband to then knowing that he's no longer here. I'm sure that there was definitely some insurance available and different things and the NFL uh, pension, but still you have a long life to live. Kimberly. Mm-hmm. So life after your husband, how, what have you done? Well, so immediately after he passed away, I, um, I took over the nonprofit that he started because I promised him that I would keep that going during his recovery from his stem cell transplant. He let it be known that he wanted to help other cancer patients, especially kids who had cancer. And so I attempted to keep his nonprofit going. Um, I, the only background I had in the meeting was broadcasting. And so I was trying to figure out if there was a way to, to get back into that field. And um, I actually had an interesting set of circumstances by being blessed with amazing parents. My parents who had been divorced since I was two years old, they were living in Florida. I was living in Dallas. Both of them picked up and left Florida and moved into my house to help me raise our sons. So my mom moved in upstairs, my dad moved in downstairs and them allowing me to help me figure some things out by watching my sons and helping me raise them allowed me to help, you know, just find my purpose, which is now to not only help cancer patients and, um, and caregivers, but to also create a, uh, a health communications company recently. And hopefully within the next few weeks, launch my own podcast. Okay. All right. So, and that will be for another time conversation for sure. But, uh, you're also involved, uh, not just in that area, sports too, right? Sports Mm -hmm. broadcasting. Can you explain a little bit of that? Yeah. Yeah. So the interesting part about my connection to sports is that when I was a senior at CU Boulder, um, I did an internship at the NBC affiliate there. And being the wife of an NFL player while working in media was really tricky because I saw how the media would sometimes kind of interpret what was going on in the sports world. And I was a little bit sensitive. I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit sensitive. And I somewhat started to regret um, going into media because I saw it differently. And so when Eli passed away, um, I started working with a gentleman here. We have a a show in Dallas called The Golf and More Experience. And um, I don't really care for golf as much, so I provide the and more experience. (laughs) But my my perspective is different because I have a closer connection to pro sports. You know, not only was I married to – an NFL player, but our youngest son is um, actually part of the New York Yankees minor league system. Um, He was drafted out of high school a few years ago. And so 
having a pulse on what's going on on the, I guess, somewhat inside component of sports just allows me to share my views on things that are different from the typical sportscaster. I guess that's the best way to put it. I, th- I think it's definitely in the best place, definitely to put it, but it's awesome to hear the, you know, the story and uh, wow. And uh, where you are today. And so the podcast, do you have figured out what the podcast can be about? You said you started a media company. So is that all based on the nonprofit, the media company? No, it wasn't. Um, I've always stayed within the cancer space with um, the nonprofit. So I, I ended up actually shutting down my husband's nonprofit. And then I joined the board for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which also helps myeloma patients since they cover all blood cancers. Um, and then I started a company called Kim Connects because I love to partner nonprofits with retail brands and create charity events. So I've done I've done that. COVID kind of shut all of that down last year and I'm looking forward to getting those events going again. And um my goodness, I, I lost my train of thought. What else were we talking about? The, the, me- uh, the media company. Right. The well it's a huge a health communications company where we oh. are creating content for healthcare providers and um hospitals, physicians, pharmaceutical companies in order to connect them with minority communities to help eliminate health disparities. One of the things I've learned in this cancer advocacy space is that there are a lot of minorities that don't have access that they should. They They don't don't, have the information that they should. And so I'm really sensitive to that and wanted to help make a difference in that space. That's great. So you're creating videos for them and and well, it's, it's more like creating um, programming, like different types of content for them to connect with the community. So sometimes it's video, but for the most part, it tends to be, how can I explain it? Um, just programs and information, providing them with resources so that they will know where to go, who to talk to, how to go about attaining that information. Sometimes it's video. Sometimes it's just something that they can find on their computer and read in their own spare time. And that's definitely not connected to the nonprofit. So that's another thing in itself, correct? Correct. Okay. Yes. Awesome. You have all these things going on. I have a and lot going you, on. Exactly. Well, that's good. And, uh, I'm sorry again for the loss of your husband. And I think you're definitely having his legacy live on through you and all the amazing things you're doing. And you see now how you can help other people that have, have lost mm-hmm. a loved one through cancer. And you're really pr- providing a great difference. So where can people donate for the, fo- about the, for the foundation? And I know you have a couple websites people can check out, right? Well, yes, I would encourage anyone listening who wants to help to make a donation to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. They are a national organization. There are local chapters that you can support. I'm a big fan of all of the things that they're doing in the blood cancer space. As far as connecting with me, I have a website. It's kimconnects.com. I'm also on social media. My handle is pretty much the same on Instagram and Twitter. It's the Kim Alexander. And, um, Shut me down. I'm I'm always here and open to being a resource to helping anyone that needs help in terms of, you know, trying to navigate the cancer space or if they've got any questions about media and branding, I'm I'm all for it. Well, we appreciate it and uh thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, you're listening to Neil Haley's show and we'll be back in just a moment. 